This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This is the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf on your flagship station for New York sports. The Fan, Sports Radio 66 and 1019 FM, WFAN, New York. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Rick Wolf's Sports Edge. I'm your host, Rick Wolf. Well, we had a tremendous response to last week's topic of why it seems that so many college coaches, along with high school and club coaches, well, they they just can't seem to understand the basic parameters of conducting themselves in the most fundamental manner of communicating with their athletes. And I'm talking about the the seemingly endless stream of top college coaches in particular who are accused of grabbing or punching their players or saying incredibly stupid or hurtful things to them. Now, last Sunday, we talked about the most recent case of this happening, uh, Greg Marshall of Wichita State, the winningest basketball coach in Wichita State history, who stepped down after being accused of numerous incidents in which he allegedly punched a player uh, or said hurtful and demeaning things to other players. Uh, We also mentioned uh, former Rutgers basketball coach Mike Rice and the former Rutgers AD Julie Herman, and on and on, all of them who were accused by their former players of forms of verbal or physical abuse. And, of course, we also talked about coaches at the college level who had misrepresented themselves on their resumes in order to get top jobs. In short, we talked about coaches being held accountable for their words and their actions, much in the same way we teach our athletes that they have to be held accountable when they say or do something stupid as well. Now, again, last week we we ran out of time to discuss all the various subsequent issues. One, quite simply, is why would a coach, why would a big-time coach jeopardize his or her name and their employer's reputation by doing these things? Is it because they, they somehow feel that they've reached a point in their career in which they are not being held accountable? Or do they just feel that they can explain their their inappropriate actions by saying, well, it's just in their DNA, that that's the way they were born, that's how they're wired to be hyper-competitive? Now, of course, that's certainly no excuse. Do they not understand that every game, every practice is recorded on video, that everything is seen and taped for posterity? Or do they know that, well, deep down, that even if they do lose control of their temper and they do get fired, They're going to be entitled to a big buyout. And then, of course, they'll lay low for a couple of years and then be hired by another college program. So the other lingering question I have is, why would a college, which has the right to fire a coach for cause, why do they feel compelled 
to give a disgraced coach millions of dollars in severance. Why not just say, Coach, you were hurtful to our student-athletes, to our program, and to the college, and you were making big bucks. Your, am- your actions have damaged our school's reputation. Therefore, we're firing you for a cause, and we're not going to give you a- any we're not give you any severance at all, not a dime. That's where we sort of left off last week, and that's a legal question. And to that end, I want to bring in attorney, longtime WFAN legal analyst and Sports Edge contributor Steve Callis to answer this basic question. And I, I, Steve, good morning. It's always good to talk to you. Great to be with you as always, Rick. This is now, a fascinating case. Well, you know, we're talking about Greg Marshall, who walked away with a package. And again, he denied everything. He denied all the allegations regarding, uh, you know, choking one of the assistant coaches. He uh, denies punching all of his players and so on and so forth. So nothing has ever – he hasn't admitted to any of this. So it's all allegedly. But let me ask this. In the real world – if a top-level executive did or said something that was hurtful or abusive to one's employees, would I mean, they'd be fired, but they would not be given a big package. Isn't that normally how it's done? If you're fired for cause, you don't get a dime, correct? Uh, that's the basis from which you start. Of course, there are always, even in those situations, non-sports, there's behind-the-scenes negotiations. You hear about guys leaving with golden parachutes who have been incompetent at their job, but I don't know that I've heard of this kind of thing where you'd be, you know, punching kids or choking coaches or verbally abusing others. But yes, that's the general rule from which we start. But now I think, especially in the Greg Marshall cases, I can read you some quotes from sports attorneys who deal in this stuff. Uh, That's not really how it finishes. And friends, of course, we'll take your calls and observations. As always, the number is one eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six. And I, Steve, I do want to let's start from this premise: if, if a college coach, and this is everybody knows this, a college coach is hired with great expectations, and uh, if he or she goes out, does their job for a few years, but the team is not successful, does not have a winning record, then invariably, well, you know, I'm sorry, it didn't work out. We're going to go in a different direction. Um, and certainly, you know, they just say you're, you're gone, it, it, but it has nothing to do with allegations of, of, uh, of abuse to the players. It just didn't work out in terms of the one-loss record. So then they've already negotiated a, a severance clause, and the coach gets that because they're going to be out of a job for hopefully uh, not too long, but that happens. This is different. This is when a coach is actually accused of, of doing something that is, you know, totally reprehensible. So... Let's go from that basis. How, how does this work? How does it, how, tell me about what you found in your research about how, how coaches and colleges get around this problem or say, no, well, well, we've already built into our package that we're going to pay this guy even if he did something really stupid. Well, I think the most interesting thing that I found out is the amount of these negotiated not-for-cause firings, what you were just talking about, you've lost too many games, and they now all have a clause in their contract that talks about what they're going to get paid if essentially they haven't won too many games. And I just want to give you a sense of how nutty it is now, Rick, because I didn't know this. Nick Saban, I'll give you a few top coaches, and then I'll give you one who's way down. Nick Saban's buyout clause, if they, not that Nick Saban is ever going to lose too many games, $36.8 million. 
Ed Ogeron, the LSU coach who won the whole thing last year with Joe Burrow, $23 million. Dabo Sweeney, arguably the most successful coach in recent years at Clemson, $50 million. And I just, to give you one more sense, I'm going to go down to number 82, Brady Hoke, who once coached Michigan. Right. He makes a million dollars a year. So he is the 82nd coach in the country. The top 82 make a million or more. guy like Saban makes $9 million. Dabo Sweeney, $8 million. But Brady Hoke's buyout is 5.1 million so you start from there but then you go to what you were talking about for cause and i just want to read you a quote as to one of the reasons because i found a bunch why schools don't want to deal with saying no you don't get a nickel you punched the guy you did this you did that here's a quote from a lawyer named curry sexton in the kansas city firm specifically about uh the greg marshall case quote when a college terminates a coach for cause and attempts to relieve itself of any obligations under the contract, including buyout negotiations, the college is almost certainly exposing itself to a high risk of litigation. These coaches generally have deep pockets and good legal teams in their corners, so they will not typically go down without a fight, close quote. What happened in this case, as I think you know, he's got a $15 million buyout. They offered him $2 million to go away. Mm -hmm. He got his lawyers. They got in the room. And they essentially negotiated, in my opinion, half of it, $7.5 million. You could walk away with that money. As you know, he wasn't fired. He, quote, resigned. Right. And he always denied any problems. He denied all of this stuff. And I'll give you some more quotes later about that aspect of it. But I think what happened was they split it down the middle. And this is interesting to me because it's $7.5 million to Marshall. And there was a separate agreement relating to the coach's departure, paying the remaining 250000 in a lump sum. To me, that's the lawyer's bill. So Greg Marshall got exactly <laughs> half of his, not for cause, if you will, for losing $15 million. And, oh, by the way, we'll throw you two fifty on the side, which I'd be willing to bet. You know, that's a big number in Wichita. It's not a big number in the Northeast. <laughs> but the lawyers probably got 250000 Now, that's an educated guess. I didn't read that, but I did read there's a separate agreement for that money. And what happens is, over time, and again, I can read you some more quotes now or later, about the reasons why a school would do this to me, to give you maybe not a great analogy, but you'll understand it, is... It's almost become a cost of doing business in college athletics, mainly, as you know, D1 football and D1 basketball. And this is similar, in my view, to the tobacco industry paying tens of billions of dollars over the years, yet there's still a thriving tobacco industry. Or the automobile, where there's a terrible defect in a car, and they wind up paying hundreds of millions of dollars to settle those kinds of things. It literally is a cost of doing business, and I think here... And the interesting thing about the Marshall case is, as you know, it's going to be paid over six years. Yeah. So I read another quote where a guy's going to say, well, Wichita State, that might not be so bad for them because Greg Marshall was making $3.5 million a year. The next coach they're going to hire isn't going to be making $3.5 million a year. So if you pay it over six years and you sign a guy for, say, $2.2 million a year, which is still a big number, the 2.2 plus the 1.3 equals Greg Marshall's pay out every year in salary so it's kind of a wash to some degree which is again nutty well, to you and me rick um but that's hap that's what happens and that apparently is exactly what happened in this case so as you say and, and this is really just 
you know, going into the nuts and bolts of the uh-huh. situation, you just say, okay, Marshall is making $3.5 million, which was renewed annually. Right. Uh, the new coach they bring in, whoever that may be, uh, makes $2 million, let's say. Still, as you say, a pretty big-sized number. They're actually saving in terms of uh, not paying Marshall $1.5 million, which then goes to pay him on his, on his pa- buyout package. And the numbers you used before with you know, Nick Saban and Ogeron and these guys, in fact, I was watching uh, Ogeron last night, and, you know, he, he confronted his quarterback and got in his face. And yeah. I'm thinking, okay, you know, now I just want to be clear about this. Coaches, you're, it's okay for you to get loud. It's okay for you to, to, to you know, express yourself vehemently. Uh, but, A, you got to make sure you don't say something stupid. You know, which is hurtful and demeaning or even racist, racist. And B, you can't grab a kid. Now, he didn't grab the quarterback last night, but he clearly, certainly was in his face. Um, but again, you know, this is the, the old excuse of heat, the heat of the battle nonsense. That doesn't work anymore. I mean, you have to be able to control yourself. But going back to my original point, Steve, I mean, why can't, why don't we see a college athletic director or a college board of trustees simply say, Coach, you, you violated a basic trust of being an educator. I mean, theoretically, we all know that coaches are supposed to be educators. So you did something really terrible to one of your players. Uh, you just crossed the line. So we are going to fire you, and we're gonna, not going to pay you anything. Um, why? Explain to me why wouldn't a college – you mentioned that quote before from that attorney in Kansas City. Why would a college not say, no, you're not, we're not going to pay you anything. You're, you're terrible. I'm you know? going to give you an example why, Rick. Yeah. So, a few years ago, the coach of Kansas, the football coach, his name was David Beatty. Yeah. And he was fired, and they refused to pay him his $3 million buyout after they discovered potential NCAA infractions. Okay. So, Beatty sued Kansas for the $3 million, and the public back and forth lasted nearly two years before Kansas finally settled with Beatty this past summer for $2.55 million. So after two years of litigation, after publicity that was bad for Kansas, was bad for Beatty, was bad for everybody, Beatty got everything except 450000 if he had lost too much. And so that's one of the reasons. And let me give you specific reasons why people don't do, why schools don't do this. And this is also from the same lawyer in Kansas City. Quote, any litigation that ensues from a four-cause termination of a college coach is almost always high-profile, and that it is constantly dissected by the media and fans. This is not good for recruiting, for the bottom line of the athletic department, or for the general operation functionality of the athletic department. Instead of focusing on raising money and putting winning teams on the playing field, these departments are forced to expend a ton of time and resources on an intense, drawn-out legal battle. So there's a few reasons why schools don't do it. The Beatty case is another reason why schools don't do it. And, you know, I have my own personal view that, and, and it's kind of referenced here but not explicitly, whereas uh, I'm the hot coach in the NCAA tournament, right? There's always two or three coaches from those mid-level schools. They make the Sweet 16. They make the Elite Eight. They're the hottest coaches in the country. If I've got four or five offers and I know one of those schools has fired coaches for cause, won't pay them a penny, and there's always litigation when that happens now, Rick, by definition. I'll talk to you about Rick Patino in a minute. Uh, I'm going to be a little reluctant to go to that school versus three or four other schools, which are just using this as a cost of doing business. And heaven forbid something goes wrong. I'm a straight-up coach. I'm not going to cause any problems. But you never know. And then I negotiate a high buyout 
frankly. <laughs> and then when it comes down, if I did do something wrong, NCAA violations or worse, Greg Marshall, uh, I still get some lawyers because I got a lot of money, and I'm going to try and settle this for something near what I would have gotten anyway. And that happens more often than not. We're talking with uh, Steve Callis, uh, of course, and we're talking about the, what happens uh, on the back end of a, of a, of a college coach, uh, you know, does something st- really outrageous and, and uh, is decided that the, the, the coach, uh, the, the college decides to terminate that coach, and then the, the coach then gets a big buyout uh, rather than go through the time, expense, and I guess embarrassment of, of litigation. It, it, you know, it, Steve, I hear what you're saying, and I, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But and, and I should point out, of course, that the most, the vast majority of college coaches and high school and club coaches do not do this stuff. But man, oh man, it just seems outrageous that you're going to get paid. Uh, you know, have, you have the safety net. You're going to get paid a lot of dough uh, if you say something stupid. Uh, and hey, look. I, I, we know this happens all the time where a coach will say something stupid during the course of a game. After the game is over, we'll go to the player. Again, we're talking about kids now. We're talking about teenagers or p- kids in their early 20s. And the coach will say, hey, man, I'm sorry. I said something I shouldn't have said during the heat of battle, but, uh, you know, don't, don't let it bother you. Kid, kids are not going to say anything. The kid obviously may be very hurt, upset, but obviously they're not going to tell their coach that uh, how angry they are. They're just going to let it go. But I know these things stay with kids for their entire lives, and it's just wrong. I mean, it, it, I, it just seems so bizarre that you could be a big-time, big-time college coach making millions of dollars and basically have a free license to say what you want, knowing that if, if at the end you're going to get a buyout and go someplace else. And uh, Steve, let me let me take a time out here. I I'm, I find this to be just fascinating and very frustrating. Uh, it, it's just bizarre. And friends, we're going to take your calls on this very important topic. Which I don't think it's really been discussed before in the sports edge. And it's it's again we're talking about the college level, the high school level. Of course, most high school coaches work on a annual uh, contract. They get paid year to year. They don't they don't get long term contracts. Uh, I mean, I know a few do, but most part you are hired without having any tenure as a as a high school coach. The club team, well, that's different. Obviously, you're the parent. You're paying for the club team, uh, you know, have your kid in that team. If you don't like it, the coach is out of control. There's not much you can do about it except basically to take your kid and withdraw him or her from that program. All right, let me take a, a pause here. one 337 When I return, we'll start getting some calls as well. Stay with me. Sports Radio, 1019 FM, the fan, WFAN. Okay, Coach, here's how it goes. You can just sort of imagine this kind of conversation taking place between an athletic director hiring a big-time college coach. And AD says, Coach, just to be clear, you cannot at any time physically grab, shove, push, hit, smack, or do or say anything else along those lines with your players. Even if it's during the heat of battle in a game, or if you feel that the, the, the kid just did something incredibly wrong or stupid during a tight game or in a practice, it's just not allowed. Let's be clear about that. 
But if you do, well, we'll pay you millions of dollars to leave the program. <laughs> has nothing to do. Has nothing to do with your one loss record. We're talking with Steve Callis about how how can this even happen? And, and again, just to be clear, before I said the break, uh, we know there are coaches who, unfortunately, there are a few uh, at the high school level who are physically uh, abusive or verbally abusive towards their players. But high school coaches are hired on a year to year basis, uh, and again at the club level. Level. Again, if you if you have your kid on a club team, you better do your homework ahead of time because once your kid is enrolled and is going to practices and games, if that coach uh, so has a Jekyll and Hyde kind of personality, there's not much you can do about that except take your kid out of the program and hopefully find another club team for him or her to play on. But at the collegiate level, uh, you know, Steve, I just, I just, this is unbelievable how people, how these coaches get away with this. Well, it is kind of unbelievable, but I'll give you again, I I can give you the details of part of the actual uh, definition of good cause in Greg Marshall's contract. This is interesting that you found this, of course, Rick, because usually these things, as you know, are never disclosed. You never really, really find out exactly the contents of a contract. But I will read this to you, and then you and I will both agree, well, if he punched a guy or choked a guy or even verbally abused a guy, he, you know, shouldn't have gotten a nickel. But here's one of the definitions of good cause in Greg Marshall's contract, quote. Um, one of the definitions of good cause is, quote, discreditable conduct by Mr. Marshall that is inconsistent with the professional standards expected of a head coach of an intercollegiate sports team that results in material injury to the reputation of Wichita University or its program or conduct that offends public decency or morality is measured by the community standard prevailing in Wichita and the state of Kansas. Now, yeah. nobody would say what, yeah. what he's alleged to have done doesn't fit that, okay? Yeah, right. well, let me read you one more, uh, defi- uh, one more quote from a veteran sports attorney named William, Ro- William Roberts, R-O-B-E-R-S, who is from Colorado Springs but represents a lot of college coaches. Quote, cause is usually the most negotiated portion of a coaching contract, and now you know why. That definition is limited and hard to prove. This is about this is about the Greg Marshall case. Quote, while you're trying to prove that, you have to pay him until you can make your case. In addition, if they terminated him for cause, they would have had to give him a hearing. Wichita State likely didn't want that publicity. If there were other parties in the athletic department with any guilt on their hands, his hearing would have flushed those out. My guess is they wanted this to go away as quickly as possible, close quote. That just leads me to, again, cost of doing business. And all I'll say is, and we'll get to our calls in, in a minute here, but the, all I'll say is this, is that basically these are theoretically college institutions who theoretically are trying to educate student-athletes <laughs> and trying to look out for their betterment and for their, their, their welfare. And they're basically, but they're saying just the opposite, saying, well, yeah, we know the coach turned out to be a bad guy, a bad human being, so basically we're just going to pay him a ton of money to go away because even though we should have fired him and not pay him anything at all, as you said, it's just a cost of doing business. I'm sorry to the, the players he had who suffered that verbal abuse or physical abuse. But, I mean, the, the, 
how come the, the kids don't sue and say, you, I came in here under uh, the premise of having a fine college education. How come I can't sue the university for having uh, you guys hiring a bad coach and then do nothing about it? Well, that's a fascinating angle. And I would say for sure, if a guy punched you or choked you, that's an assault. I don't know if anybody would go so far as to try and have a coach arrested. But certainly to me, there's a civil suit right there. Now, for just straight up verbal abuse, just not sure. I mean, you can obviously bring a suit for virtually anything. I just don't know if that would be as successful. But when it gets physical, and again, the allegations are with this guy that he punched a couple of players, that he choked the coach, those are possible. Now, I would say to you, again, trying to be practical, if I'm the assistant coach and I got choked, if I sue the head coach or the university, um, it's going to be hard for me to get another job in Jeez. the business I want to be in for the rest of my life. Oh, my goodness. All right, one one eight seven seven three three seven sixty six sixty six. Let's get some thoughts on this. Let's go to uh, let's go to our Hall of Fame coach in, in New Jersey, Jack Smith. And Jack, good morning. I know you have things to say about this topic. Well, you know, it's funny, Rick and and uh, Mr. Callis. I, I I love listening to you when it, but when it gets to all the law stuff and everything like that, I, I won't say it's over my head, but you know, it's amazing that schools get away with stuff like this. And, you know, and just talking after last week's show, and this is amazing, but after last week's show, and that was such a great show, and this one seems to be heading in that same direction as usual, um, I got so many calls and texts and emails from people, you know, mostly people that I knew, but a few that I didn't. Um, and I learned one thing, that every one of them was concerned about the crazy coaches and how it affects their kids, like you were just discussing, Rick. And most of these people that I talked to were mothers. And, you know, they, they really do have uh, a right to be concerned, you know, about these coaches. One of the things that I've read and studied over the years and, and all the books that I've read is that I found out that most of these coaches have the same and similar problems, especially the high-profile coaches like we're discussing here. I mean, with, with, with this week and, and last week, they all have a result-oriented mentality. You know, they all want to win at all costs, most of them. And that's a money thing because that hits their pockets when they don't. But they got to understand that, you know, winning is not always about – success is not always measured in wins and losses. You know, it's measured in how we develop our young athletes, how we develop. Do we teach respect and responsibility – and things like that, you know, and because when you work on the process, I mean, they got to work on the process and the results, not the end result. They need the process and the mission. I'm sorry, but, you know, remember, success, like I said, is not always measured in, in wins and losses. But I did a poll, and this is more to the parents right now, but I did a poll that stated, and this is something that I learned in my health classes about four or five years ago, so the numbers might be different, but I'm going to say between 70 and 80%, and like I said, the numbers might be different today, between 70 and 80% of all kids between the ages of 13 and 18 will actually go to a coach or a teacher or a mentor with a problem before they go to their parent. Yeah. yeah. Now, that parents, makes a lot of sense. You know, when, you, when you're thinking, when you're thinking about, looking at a school, college, or even a high school, because a lot of people make decisions on Catholic, private, you know, uh, prep schools or public schools. 
or even the youth programs, the club teams. Don't always look at the wins and losses like I mentioned last week. Pick out the coach because between the ages of 8 and 15, and this is another poll that I just read about, between the ages of 8 and 15, your child during the year, during the school weeks and year, will spend more than 11 hours a day with a teacher or a coach. All right? Now, they're only up for another six or seven hours, possibly. <laughs> so when you're picking, what do you want to pick? Do you want to pick a team that's a winning team? Or do you want to pick a coach that's actually going to mold, that's going to teach your kids exactly what they need to do? So, you know, the last thing I want to say, it's tough to say to coaches today, just teach with, from your heart. Because you know why? Most of these coaches that are at that high level, and I, and I apologize for the great ones, but most of these coaches at that high level, they don't have a heart. They really don't. And when you think about this guy punching his players and choking his coaches, so you know what, coaches? And this is something I wanted to say based on what you said at the beginning, Rick, is that you know what? All these new coaches starting out, remember this, okay? You're not going to make a lot of money by punching somebody in the face, all right? <laughs> you're going to make more money in the future, and you're going to have more unbelievable results if you teach from the heart. But if you don't have heart, move on. And it's about time, coaches, that we understand this is not about us. This is about the kids. So start well, acting appropriately, really, start Jack, acting appropriately. Jack, well said, as always, and, and yeah, I mean, I think that's where somehow, and, and, and Jack, th thank you for the call this morning. Um, and, and Steve, here's the problem. We've we all been involved in sports all our lives. We all know that coaches start out with uh, great ideals, as Jack was alluding to. They want to connect with kids and, and help to, to mold their lives. But somehow, somehow, some coaches, it gets derailed along the way. Either coaches feel at the highest levels that they've become, um, they're immune to this stuff, or they no longer, they're, they're above the rules, or they're no longer to be held accountable. Um, it's just weird. And, and as I said, it's been going on now for a long time, maybe because of the infusion of cash. Uh, you know, because there was a time not long ago, maybe 25, 30 years ago, when college coaches were not making the kind of money they're making today. But nowadays, it is a big business. We know that all fueled by, by uh, you know, uh, TV contracts and endorsements and what have you. But, I mean, tell me, you mentioned before the break, uh, Steve, about Rick Pitino. What, what do you know about Pitino? Uh, he's had, you know, a, a very successful one-loss record, but he also has sort of a checkered background in terms of his, of his college coaching reputation. Yeah, I have an article from the Washington Post. The Rick Pitino Louisville legal battle is finally over September 18th of last year, 2019. Yeah. Now, Pitino sued Louisville after he was fired for a $40 million breach of contract, which I'm guessing is was the remainder of the uh, salary that he was to have in his Louisville contract. You know, he won a national title at Kentucky. Mm -hmm. He won one at Louisville, which was a eventually vacated, mm -hmm. but was still coaching up through 2017 where they had that play-for-pay scandal. You know, they allegedly someone paid $100,000 uh, to the parent of a, a top recruit. And here's what the two sides reached as a settlement, again, in the Washington Post. The two sides reached a settlement over Patino's $40 million breach of contract lawsuit 
the university will change the departure designation in the former coach's personnel file to consider it a resignation, they said in the joint statement. Patino, 67, will not receive any money. So there's an example of where a, a guy was fired for cause and at the end of the day got no money. Um, what he did get, which must have been very important to him, Rick, so when I say to you, oh, Rick, a few years ago, Rick Patino got fired, you can now say to me, well, he didn't get fired. He resigned. Just look yeah. at his personnel file. Yeah. So that struck me as kind of a mini, a mini, mini win, not really a big win. But I don't think Rick Patino, you know, needs the money, frankly. And of course, he went to Greece for two years, and now he's going to be the coach of Iona College, which raised a bunch of eyebrows in New York, as you know, because Rick Patino, as you said, has had lots of issues over the years. And Iona is a, frankly, little Irish Christians Catholic college in New Rochelle. But here we are, and Rick Pitino has, you know, eight recruits, and he's going to have a good year if they get to play that. That's a different conversation if there's going to be a college uh, but, basketball I mean, season. That's a classic case, you said, where obviously Pitino did not get his $40 million package, Correct. but he, the uh, the quid pro quo, what he walked away with, oh, no, I didn't get fired. Right. I resigned. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a whole... Uh, legal issue about you know whether or not uh, you know the federal investigation uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, just a whole uh, sort of mess unto itself. Uh, all right, we're, we're talking with uh, with Steve Callis, and uh, I'm going to take more of your calls about this issue when it comes to big time coaches who do and say terrible things to their the players. In many cases, these are players they recruited to the program to that college. And then the coach gets let go, not because of their one loss record, but because of the horrible things they've done to their, their athletes, and they get, they get a big payday. one 337 6666. And welcome back to the Sports Edge. I'm your host, Rick Wolf. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at hashtag AskCoachWolf. And you can always go to my website uh, where you can find all sorts of resources and columns and opinions at AskCoachWolf.com. A quick reminder that the NFL preview uh, follows the Sports Edge at 8 a.m. Uh, this morning we're talking about this very troubling pattern uh, about college coaches, big-time college coaches, but I'm sure it happens at the, at the club level, travel team level, and high school level where coaches are basically doing the same things that they shouldn't be saying to their players. Uh, usually they say it's because that's the way they are put together, that's in their DNA, or that's how they react during the heat of battle, but clearly it just shows that they don't have control of their emotions uh, over their temper, which means perhaps they're in the wrong profession. Uh, and especially at the, the collegiate level, a lot of these coaches walk away with big, big packages uh, because the, the university doesn't want to take the, the risk uh, to sully their name by going through a lawsuit to fire somebody for, for cause. It's just kind of very weird, very troubling, particularly if you are, uh, if it's your son or daughter uh, who was recruited by that coach into the program, and now all of a sudden, what? This is, what? This is weird. How come the coach is being such a, a Jekyll and Hyde kind of personality? I mean, uh, you know, there's, this has been going on for years. I mean, I, it, it's just strange, and I don't know if there's some sort of psychopathology that occurs, but uh, over the years, Woody Hayes, the legendary coach, football coach, Ohio State, yeah. I mean, he was on uh, you know television when he punched an opposing player who had the audacity, Steve, to intercept the pass in a <laughs> yes. game. 
Um, in but front took, of him, Rick, in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as I recall, it took like a week for Ohio State to say, well, maybe Woody or Thomas come for you to leave. But, uh, I mean, it wasn't like an immediate dismissal. I mean, it took a week to get rid of him. Yep. Frank Cush, a uh, longtime football coach at Arizona State. I remember he was uh, written up in Sports Illustrated for grabbing his players by their face mask and, and shaking their heads violently. Yep. Bobby Knight. Uh, Bobby Knight, of course, uh, yep. sort of set the tone in Indiana, Texas Tech, and now Greg Marshall. I mean, it's just, it's just, what, what is going on with these coaches? They were at some point, they, I'm sure they had great ideals about coaching young people, but somehow they, they went off the rails. Well, not to defend these guys at all, but I will say this: um, these are generally older coaches. They grew up in a different world. You know, I always go back to that book, The Junction Boys, mm-hmm. which if you read The Junction mm-hmm. Boys, which mm-hmm. is about Bear Bryant before right. he went to Alabama and became Bear Bryant. Yes. On the one hand, you have people, Gene Stallings, for example, uh, who thought this was the greatest thing that ever happened. When you read that book today, and I read it 20 years ago, even then, you're like, this is the sickest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yet the guys who survived... Loved Bear Bryant as the greatest coach who ever lived to the day they all died. Well, and the other guys who got abused were kind of pushed to the background, or they quit, and they were viewed to be sissies. Again, this goes back to, I think, the 50s. I was going to say, we're talking about the 1950s. We're exactly. talking about 70 years ago, different mindset, different Correct. culture. And you're right. The guys who somehow put up with, with Bear Bryant in his early years, they said, well, we survived, therefore we've, we've done something heroic here. But obviously that stuff, that, that doesn't play anymore. Everybody Correct. knows that's just, that's just a wrongful, a wrongful uh, kind of uh, sports culture. So tell me, Steve, what, what else have you found in your investigation about, uh, about uh, Wichita State and, well, and Greg Marshall? Yeah, I just want to read one more quote specifically about the Greg Marshall case. I should give credit to the Wichita Eagle because that's where most of these quotes come from. The name of the article is, Why did WSU pay Greg Marshall $7.7 million to resign? <laughs> Which is kind of almost a, a funny quote. But here's the final one specifically about this case and why you might not sue, even if you thought you had enough evidence, which struck me and you, of course, Rick, as there's enough evidence here, you'd, of course, have to get those guys to testify. But this is from Mr. Sexton, the lawyer from Kansas City, about this case. Quote, the case does not appear to be a slam dunk in the court of law, as litigation is almost always unpredictable. There is almost never a clear winner and loser. Thus, by firing Marshall for cause and attempting to avoid any buyout obligations, WSU would be exposing itself to a massive amount of risk. There would have been the possibility that Marshall would be successful in the lawsuit, which could have awarded him his full buyout, $15 million, plus WSU. You would have likely expended legal fees in an amount north of $1 million. So in the end, WSU could have been on the hook for a total amount well in excess of $7.75 million, close quote. But let's take a step back, Steve. Wouldn't Wichita State taken a step forward and saying, you know, enough, we're going to stop, we're going to draw a line in the sand and say we're not going to reward this guy with millions of dollars for being such a, such a jerk to his players. I mean, I think that would have been great publicity for Wichita State uh, to have said, we're not going to do this. We made a mistake. This guy, you know, is going to uh, hang us up for, you know, uh, millions of dollars. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. I, 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 I agree with you, saying It's a business call. I get that. But and yeah, I know you're saying you're saying that other coaches might say, "Well, I'm not going to go to Wichita State to uh, to ever coach there because if I do something wrong, they're not going to pay me my buyout." Yeah, I agree with a hundred percent with everything you just said, and what I've tried to lay out in the last 
whatever, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, is the practical ramifications of these kinds of things. For example, so he choked the coach. You're the lawyer for Wichita State. You call up that assistant coach and you say, we want you to come testify against Greg Marshall. And what does the guy say? I'm not going to testify. I want to get another job. I want to stay in this business. Is he going to have the guts to do that, to testify? And if so, what is his reward? Because frankly, Rick, his reward might be, (laughs) I'm not hiring this guy. I think there's just practical things nowadays that exist that override what you and I would say would basically be just do the right thing. Just go in and testify. Wichita State, don't pay him a nickel. And and then you you do this show and say we applaud Wichita State for doing that. And then two years from Tuesday, they have to give this guy $6 million instead of 7.75, but they pay $2 million in legal fees. Again, the cost of doing business often overrides all the good we'd like these schools to do. And, and you're uh, – well, let me, let me, let me uh, take some more calls here because I, I – as you know, I have lots of questions. Let's go next to uh, Ron in Connecticut. Uh, good morning, Ron. You're next up on the fan. Uh, good morning, guys. Listen, just a quick thought. Uh, look at the basketball game. When Michigan State plays the next game and wants to, uh, is there the coach? When those kids come off the floor and he gets in their face, yes. watch the kids' face. Watch how those kids are just emotionally hurt right at that time, and he's still there. That is outrageous, and he does it every game. And you're talking, about, you're talking about Tom Izzo from Michigan State, yeah. right? Okay. Well, that's that is now again. What happens, uh, and thanks for the call, Ron. Steve, that's a good example where, you know, Izzo, old school coach, he says, no, 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 that's, I tell my players, that's how I coach, and they accept that. Now, that's his side of the, the, the coin, and he's had a great track record of a one-loss record, but I got to tell you, you know, it's, you have to assume that some of these kids don't abide by that. Some of these kids don't, don't, don't think that's the way that they should be coached. Well, you look at Wichita State, well, they had seven kids. Seven kids this yep, last year transfer. transfer out of the program. So somebody there is, you know, <laughs> this is before Marshall had resigned uh, or was pressured to leave, but, you know, half his roster said, I'm out of here. I'm not dealing with this nut job. You know? and, and I would introduce that at any trial as proof as well of the stuff that he did and maybe you could get some of those kids I don't know. As for Tom Izzo, you know, you can see his red face screaming, yelling on the sidelines. And again, I don't defend that. He's another older coach with great success. Um, never heard anything about, you know, punching kids or anything like that. Uh, but he also won a national championship, I think, right, with the guys from Flint, Michigan. And he's like a legend there. Uh, but Ron is not wrong because he does flip out on guys. And again, back in the old days, flipping out on guys was like commonplace. Uh, grabbing guys, I won't say was commonplace, but often happened. Now, as you say, in 2020, frankly, for the last five, ten years, it's become a much different, tougher standard in terms of don't abuse these guys, certainly not physically and even not verbally, and that's where we are today. So I don't think he's wrong, but... um Tom Izzo is Tom Izzo, and frankly, he's a legend of Michigan State. But you're right. I'm sure there are players under the radar there who are like, man, this guy's a whack job. I'm getting out of here. And just to be clear, as I said this, uh, you know, 45 minutes ago when I opened the show, coaches at, you're at the high school or club travel or college level, we're not saying you can't yell and scream uh, when, when, when it's, you feel it's warranted. You can be loud with your players. 
uh, and that does happen. Uh, if that's the way you communicate, I mean, we all know John Wooden was just the opposite. John Wooden being the paradigm of, of great college coaches who rarely raised his voice. He didn't have to. But if you scream and yell, that's one thing. But as soon as you start making it personal and demeaning uh, to your players and be, be, you know, say horrible or, or hurtful things to them, uh, which allegedly Greg Marshall did, or you physically grab a player because they did something wrong or stupid, now you've crossed the line. Good coaches don't have to resort to those kind of, that kind of physical or verbal abuse. And, 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 Steve, as you were saying, this is what's happened here. Old school coaches, for example, let's take the legendary coach Mike Krzyzewski. Yeah. Everybody knows that Mike Krzyzewski, particularly in practice, uh, <laughs> you know, he is a, a disciple of Bobby Knight. Uh, coach K played at Army under Bobby Knight. He is loud. He's profane. But – I never heard anybody ever accuse Coach K of, of, of verbally abusing a player or belittling them uh, or grabbing anybody. He doesn't do that. And I would think if that ever happened, you would like to think that Coach K would then step down. And I, I've never heard anybody make that kind of accusation. He is profane. He is loud in his practice sessions, uh, but he, he doesn't cross that line. I think that's correct, and that's why he's still around, frankly. Yeah. Uh, so let me one quick question here, Steve. You know, so you're saying going back to the Wichita State case, they the lawyers made a decision with the I guess the athletic director or the college president saying, well, the lawyers are saying we could take this case to court with Greg Marshall, but there's a big risk it could really backfire and cost us more. Are you saying from a litigation perspective that, as you mentioned, like the assistant coach who allegedly got choked, that they have a hard time getting these the assistant coach and players to come forth to testify? Is that what you're saying here? I think that's part of the problem. You don't know for sure. And then even if they say, yeah, I'll do it, and then you come up to the actual day of trial, they might want to reevaluate their situation and not do it. And... um I think those are the things. If you're the lawyer walking into the room with the powers of be at Wichita State, the first thing they always say is what, Rick? You don't know what a jury is going to do. We think we can win. We think this is clear. But for someone to say the case does not appear to this case does not appear to be a slam dunk in the court of law, you and I are saying, well, wait a minute. We we read before what it is, and that would exactly damage. That would materially damage the reputation of Wichita State. That would easily meet the standard standards of Kansas or Wichita State in terms of being terrible behavior, without question. But I think when you get into the weeds on this and actually have to do it, and again, don't forget, they would have had to have given them a hearing. Uh, it would be two years of litigation at least. It would cost Wichita State $1 million, $1.5 million, $2 million. And plus, I guess the key financially, which is disgusting to talk about, is since it's payment over six years, by the way, starting December 11th, um, Greg Marshall gets a check for $48,000 every two weeks for like six years. So, so <laughs> I just want to clarify that. So, so if, if he, okay, so Wichita states, we're going to, we're going to fire you for cause and you're no longer going to be in our basketball coach. Um, and he says, well, I'm going to litigate this because I think you guys are, yep. this is a trumped up uh, nonsense. They still have to pay him until this is a final court resolution? Yeah, according to the sports attorneys who do this stuff, absolutely. 
And they'd also have to give him a hearing, which was never talked about. Why? Because well, he didn't get fired. He resigned. And I'm putting all of that in quotes. What, what happens with a hearing at, at, at this level, at the college level? Is that, is, that a, is that open to the public or just behind closed doors? I, I'm going to guess it's behind closed doors, but at least in theory, you'd have to bring people forward to come in and say, again, will the ex-players come in and say, will present players, if they've been verbally abused, come in and say, will the seven guys on the transfer list come in and say, will the coach who was choked come in and say, I don't know the answers to those questions, but you have to make a showing at a hearing. You can't just say uh, there are allegations that he punched the guy. There are allegations that he was verbally abusive to guys. At a hearing for his job for a four-cause termination, they have to show evidence at that hearing to prove that he can be fired for cause. And then at that point, a determination would be made, I think, if they got enough evidence to fire him for cause. And that would only be the beginning, Rick. I think that's what these lawyers are essentially saying. That's just the start. Then we're going to, uh, 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 I don't want to say a real court, but a court of jurisdiction that would handle this kind of litigation, which would be far beyond what a hearing entails. And, and again, to your point, uh, you know, when we were growing up, having a, a student athlete or an assistant coach ever come and testify against a head coach who has a, you know, uh, winning his coach in the school's yeah. history. These days, how things have changed. We all know in the last couple of years about, you know, student athletes now saying, hey, we want to get paid for our, you know, endorsements. Yes. Uh, we want to get, we want to have a union so that uh, if we think that COVID is a real concern uh, to our health and welfare, we're not going to play. I mean, all of a sudden we've seen a huge empowerment situation with college student athletes finding their voice. And I have a sense that, you know, this we might be in the on the cusp of seeing that kind of thing happen when a kid transfers out and says, you know, the coach was just uh, out of control and it's not what I signed up for, and I'll be glad to testify in a court of law that this guy was a nut job because I feel he's going to have an impact, a negative impact on other student athletes who come through this college program. I mean, and that's more likely to happen nowadays than when we were young. Yeah, uh, no question. I think, uh, well. We'll have to wait and see how it happens because, as I said, this is uh, an interesting case. It it made headlines here for a couple of days here in New York, but clearly in the college ranks, uh, and as Jack Smithland said, moms everywhere are concerned about, where's my kid playing for? What kind of coach is this? So, anyhow, Steve, this is just fascinating. I thank you so much for your time and and for your research and obviously your legal insight on this matter. It is just just amazing what goes on in big-time college athletics. Always a pleasure, Rick. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 